Today's reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 37, verses 9 to 38, which can be found on page 1116 of the Black Bibles. Now, Sennacherib received a report that Tirhaka, the king of Cush, was marching out to fight against him. When he heard it, he sent messages to Hezekiah with this word. Say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says, Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Surely you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. And will you be delivered? Did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by my predecessors deliver them, the gods of Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Tel Asar? Where is the king of Hamath or the king of Arpad? Where are the kings of Leir, Sepharvavim, Hena, and Eva? Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these peoples and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word the Lord has spoken against him. Virgin daughter of Zion, despises and mocks you. Daughter Jerusalem, tosses her head as you flee. Who is it you have ridiculed and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers you have ridiculed the Lord, and you have said with many chariots, I have ascended the heights of the mountains, the utmost heights of Lebanon. I have cut down its tallest cedars, the choicest of its junipers. I have reached its remotest heights, the finest of its forests. I have dug wells in foreign lands and drunk the water there. With the soles of my feet, I have dried up all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard? Long ago, I ordained it. In the days of old, I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you have turned fortified cities into piles of stone. Their people, drained of power, are dismayed and put to shame. They are like plants in the field, like the tender green shoots, like grass sprouting on the roof, scorched before it grows up. But I know where you are and when you come and go and how you rage against me because you rage against me and because your insolence has reached my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will make you return by the way you came. This will be the sign for you, Hezekiah. This year you will eat what grows by itself and the second year what springs from that. But in the third year sow and reap plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Once more, a remnant of the kingdom of Judah will take root 
below and bear fruit above. For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The seal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while he was worshipping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his sons Adramelech and Sherezer killed him with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Ezahadon, his son, succeeded him as king. Wonder this morning if you think of yourself as a trusting person. Are you a trusting person? Remember my grandfather used to leave the keys in the ignition of his car, even when he parked it, just kind of close the door and leave it there. I don't think he ever thought that someone might come along and steal it. I expect none of us do that today. But I wonder, are you a trusting person? I've been thinking about this question as I've been reading through the book of Isaiah over the last uh, couple of months, and I wonder whether as a country or as a society, we're beginning to lose our ability to be trusting. I think there's good reason behind that, isn't there? There have been so many scandals, so much corruption, so much bad behaviour, constant lies. These things seem so prevalent in our world today, don't they? We no longer trust our institutions or those that work in them. We don't trust priests, we don't trust bankers, we don't trust politicians, and a whole host of other professions are no longer considered trustworthy. And in just the last year or so, that term fake news has become part of our everyday language. We can no longer today even trust the news, can we? In our world today, it's hard to know who we can or who we should trust. Can you trust your bank manager? Can you trust your surgeon, your taxi driver, your teacher, your member of parliament? Can you trust your pastor? Can you trust God? Perhaps you're here today because you're just wanting to know a little bit more about Jesus. You don't really know him, and so trusting in him, well, that's kind of out of the question at the moment for you. If that's you today, if you're here just to get a little bit more of an insight into who God is, I'd love you to go home today and read through chapters 36 to 39 of Isaiah, the chapters that we're looking at today, and ask yourself, can these words be true? Can they be true words? I'd love you to weigh up the evidence. Have a look at some of the archaeological finds that I'm going to show you a little later on this morning. Are they true words? Maybe you think God is real, but you're still trying to work out if he's good or if he's trustworthy. Is he deserving of your allegiance, deserving of your faith? Maybe you already know God. You already trust in him for many things, like that 
desperately needed parking space in town on your way in to do that quick errand? But do you trust God for the bigger things in life? Do you find in Jesus security? Do you find hope, assurance, your identity? Over the last few weeks as I've been reading through the book of Isaiah and as we've been reading it as a church, I think that I've seen that trust is a really big theme in this book. Here's how it seems to be phrased as we work our way through the book of Isaiah. I think it's asking us to think through questions like this. Is God trustworthy? Will he keep his promises? Can he be relied upon? Is he powerful enough? Is he big enough? Is he strong enough to carry out the purposes that he promised, even in the face of great opposition? I think those are some of the questions that Isaiah as a book is asking us to think through. And today I want us to see that God is entirely trustworthy. That he can be depended upon to keep his promises. That he's reliable. And that those who lean on him, those who place their faith in him, will indeed be rescued and delivered. They'll be saved. That's the big idea of today. If you get nothing else out of today, I hope you remember that. That our God is a God of salvation. A God who keeps his promise. A God who saves. Today I want us to see the trustworthy nature of God as we read through three events that happen in the life of King Hezekiah. You can read about those three events in chapters 36 to 38 and I would love you to go home this week and read those chapters. Mark just read one of those accounts, one of the stories that we're going to look at today. Unfortunately these chapters are quite long so if we were to read through them now, which I would like to do, we'll probably have a revolt from our kids' leaders and um, that would not be a good thing this morning. But I am interested in you looking at these for yourself this week. So rather than go too long in terms of uh, spending time with you this morning, I thought what I would do is to try and present to you uh, the stories of these three stories of King Hezekiah uh, to give you kind of the gist of what's going on. So I'm going to present to you three different scenes. Each scene demonstrates Hezekiah's trust in God. And to try and keep it interesting, I'm going to sort of do a little bit of acting out of what's going on here. So let me start over here. I've got, uh, I want you to imagine for a moment that I am King Hezekiah sitting on my, my throne, although actually at this point in life I would be sitting in my bed or lying in my bed because I'm desperately sick. I'm just going to put my Hezekiah crown on for a moment. So you need to know that as King Hezekiah, I am desperately, desperately unwell. Have you ever been sick? I don't just mean have you ever scratched your knee or broken your fingernail, I mean really, really sick. Have you ever been in bed wondering if you will get up again? Maybe you had a tropical disease like typhoid or malaria or yellow fever or something like that. Maybe it was a case of man flu. <laughs> have you ever been really, really sick? Well, I, Hezekiah, was once. I was confined to bed and I was actually dying. During my sickness, a friend of mine, a prophet called Isaiah, came to visit me. Now, normally a visit from a friend when you're unwell is a great thing, isn't it? But then not all friends are like Isaiah the prophet. They don't teach bed manners at prophet school. There I was in my sick bed needing comfort and consolation. 
And without so much as even saying hello, Isaiah says to me, put your house in order because you're going to die, you will not recover. I was sick and weak, but even in that sickness and that weakness, anger started brooding within me. How could that be? I was in the prime of my life. I was being robbed. And then the anger transitioned into sadness and tears started to flow and I wept bitterly. And then I prayed, turning my face to the wall, I called out to God and I prayed this, Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. See, as a king, as King Hezekiah, I love God. I've obeyed him. I closed my eyes, the tears didn't stop. And then Isaiah was back again, and again he spoke. He says, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says, I've heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life, and I'll deliver you and this city from the hand of King Assyria. I will defend this city. I couldn't believe my ears. 15 more years? Sounded too good to be true. And not only my life, but God had promised to deliver this city as well. I was so excited by what God had done in my life, by this amazing healing that I wrote a poem. If you want to read it, you can read it in chapter 38 of Isaiah. This is what I learnt. The Lord had saved me. He's a God of salvation. He's powerful. He's even able to defeat death. You know, He controls time. Just like Isaiah told me, he's high and he's lifted up. He's an exalted God, a powerful God. That's the first of the three scenes of Hezekiah's amazing stories. In the next scene, I want you to imagine for a moment that you're back in geography class because I think to understand this event in Hezekiah's life, seeing some maps of the region of the world which he lived in is very helpful for us. This scene still involves King Hezekiah, but this time the threat is not so much directed to King Hezekiah himself. He's not sick. The threat is against his kingdom, against Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. So here's a map on the screen behind me of the ancient Near East. If you know your geography, just to kind of put you in place in the world, this is the Nile Delta here, so Egypt is down here. These coloured sections here that you can see are the land of Israel. I'll get Ian to zoom in for us, and we just see a little bit more closely. So these different regions you see here are the different parts of Israel. And what I'd love you to see here is this is Judah. It's a bit hard to see on this map, I apologise for that. Here's a town called Lachish, that dot there, and Jerusalem is up here. And these things are going to become important for us in a few minutes. Well, I'll get you to zoom back out again, Ian. During the time that Hezekiah was king... The superpower in the world at the time was, was Assyria, the nation of Assyria. And they were led by a king whose name was Sennacherib. Sennacherib had conquered pretty much every town, every region in his path towards world domination. The northern tribes of Israel by this stage in our story had already been defeated by Assyria and only the southern tribes remained. And then when we get to chapter 36 on page 1114 of your Bibles, I'd love you to turn there and read with me, we get this account. 
So this is uh, chapter 36 of Isaiah on page 1114, and I'm reading from verse 1. It says, In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah, that's the southern region of Israel, and captured them. The king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish, that town I showed you on the map, to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to Launder's field, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. And the field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have counsel and might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? So let me just show you geographically what's happened at this time. I'll get Ian to put up the next slide. So the yellow is the kingdom of Assyria now, and all that remains of Israel is this orange part here called Judah. And we read there that King Sennacherib, he's just conquered all the fortified cities in the land of Judah as well. So really, all that's left of Israel is this tiny little point that is the city of Jerusalem. So really, the map is, all that's left is just Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is a walled city. And it's surrounded by a large army and a field commander. And the field commander taunts the people inside this walled city of Jerusalem, proclaiming that all too soon they'll be eating their own excrement and drinking their own urine, because that's what a siege around a walled city eventually gets to, isn't it? And if you were here with us a few weeks back, you might remember that image that we saw from chapter 1 of Isaiah. It says this, it says, Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion, or Jerusalem, is all that is left, like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. And here we have that, a city under siege, Jerusalem, surrounded by the nation that is Assyria. I wonder, have you ever been threatened like really threatened? How did Hezekiah respond to the threat that came from King Sennacherib? Well, let me show you what he does. It's at the start of chapter 37. When he heard this, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth, and he went to the temple of the Lord. He sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna the secretary, and the leading priests, all wearing sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. What does Hezekiah do when he's threatened? He asks Isaiah to pray, to call on the name of God. And as the king, he leads his people in repentance. He puts on sackcloth, he goes to the temple, and he asks for Isaiah to pray. It's not the first time in his life that Hezekiah has been threatened with death, is it? He was sick on his deathbed. And just like the time when he was sick, he calls out to God. This time he's doing it through the prophet Isaiah. But again, he implores for God to act for his namesake. He trusts in the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the one who he knows is high 
and exalted. And God again hears Hezekiah, and yet again he delivers him from his people. If you've got your Bibles open, have a look at verse 8 of chapter 37. We read that the field commander gets message that his king has moved on to another battle, and so he leaves Jerusalem with his large army. At that point, the siege around Jerusalem has ended. Hezekiah once again has seen God acting to protect and to save him. He's acted just as he promised. He's a God who can be trusted. Between verses 8 and 9 in chapter 37, I think there's a period of time where Hezekiah as a king must have been able to relax. The siege has ended. I imagine that the city gates would have been opened and that those who were brave enough might have kind of gone out to check on their farms and fields to see if there was anything left there. And Hezekiah, I think, at this stage would have felt pretty confident. God had done what he promised. He had protected Jerusalem. I reckon he would have thought that this is a God worth trusting. I reckon he would have been feeling confident until the Assyrians return. And that happens just one verse later in verse 9 of chapter 37. The threat returns. It's time for scene 3. I just want to try and let you know what happens in this scene. I want to be a king again, so I'm going to put my crown back on. And this time the threat comes in a letter. I wonder, do you like opening letters? Normally I do too, as a king, I love opening letters, but today this one is from Sennacherib, my nemesis. You can read about what that letter says on uh, chapter 37, verse 10, but let me open it and read to you the letter that Sennacherib sends to Hezekiah. He says, Do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says, Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Syria. Surely you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. And will you be delivered? Did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by my predecessors deliver them? The gods of Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the peoples of Eden who were in Telassar. Where is the king of Hamath or the king of Arpad? Where are the kings of Liar, Seravim, Hina, and Ivar? So here we have Jerusalem again being threatened, Jerusalem under attack. What am I to do as a king? I have no other trick. I have no other hope. All of the nations that I used to be, used to be my allies have all gone. And so Hezekiah goes to the temple. I must speak with God. I must ask him to act for his namesake. And Hezekiah takes this letter that he receives from King Sennacherib and he lays it out in the temple and he prays to God. It's a wonderful prayer. It starts in verse 16 of chapter 37. Let me read it to you. This is what Hezekiah prays. Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It's true, Lord. The Assyrian kings have laid waste all these peoples and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. 
Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. Great prayer, isn't it? Under enormous threat, Hezekiah prays to the Lord Almighty, the God whose robe, you remember, fills the temple, the God who the seraphim proclaim is holy, holy, holy. And at this stage, Hezekiah has put all his eggs, so to speak, in God's basket. He's trusting solely in the provision of God. Will he prove trustworthy? That's the question as we read this. Let me read to you what happens, starting at verse 33 on page 1118. Speaking about Sennacherib, he will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with a shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. And he returned to Nineveh and stayed there. These are three stories that we've just read or kind of looked at. Three scenes that demonstrate Hezekiah's deepening trust and confidence in his God. In a world in which trust is kind of in short supply, and for good reason in our world, here are three accounts that help remind us that our God is a trustworthy God. For Hezekiah, can you see how important these stories are? For Israel, can you see how important these stories are about what it means to trust God? It must have filled them with hope and confidence as they looked back and read these stories. But what about us today? How do you feel as you read these stories? Are they helpful at helping you to trust more in God? I've been thinking about this over the last couple of weeks. And I might be alone in this, but as I read these stories, sometimes they seem kind of too far removed for me. It seems sometimes that the consequences are kind of almost too fanciful or too extreme to really almost believe. You might be wondering, are these stories historical facts or are they kind of mere whimsy? Did it really happen this way or is the author using hyperbole to try and make a point? And I wonder, as I've been reading this, I think that sometimes I've been reading these accounts more as kind of hyperbole. I know in my head that this is historical narrative, but I'm not as captured by the sheer numbers as I think I should be. I mean, really, what would it look like to wake up one morning and find 185,000 people? That's like two lots of the MCG on grand final day. 185,000 people dead. Perhaps for me, the reason why uh, I find this hard to read is because these stories are quite familiar. I've become almost numb to the numbers that are in them. But I don't think that's how it's meant to be. I realized that I was reading these as kind of being numb when I came across 
this picture. I've got Ian to put it up on the screen. Uh, it's a bit hard to see, but you get the idea. This is a, a Syrian relief carving, it's called. And it's taken from the Assyrian palace. It's an archaeological find. And what it shows us depicts the siege of Jerusalem when King Sennacherib was in the town of Lachish and tribute was being brought to him from Jerusalem. See, this is another extant source of information about the siege of Jerusalem. And it's carved into stone, not by the Israelites, but by the Assyrians. Great reminder that these stories are real, that they actually happened. But this is not the only archaeological treasure that people have found relating to the destruction of Judah. The Assyrians, just like the Jews, recorded their history in books or uh, items called annals. In the case of the Assyrians, these annals were carved into clay prisons. Here's a picture on the screen of one of those annals. You see it there? This is called Sennacherib's Prism. It's written in a different language to ours, but let me translate, or I can't translate it myself, but let me read to you what uh, it was written in one section of this prism. Sennacherib says this, As for the king of Judah, Hezekiah, who had not submitted to my authority, I besieged and captured 46 of his fortified cities, along with many smaller towns, taken in battle with my battering ram. I also took as plunder 200,150 people, both small and great, male and female, along with a great number of animals, including horses, mules, donkeys, camels, oxen and sheep. As for Hezekiah, I shut him up like a cage bird in his royal city of Jerusalem. Then I constructed a series of fortresses around him and did not allow anyone to come out of the city gates. His towns which I captured, I gave to the kings of Ashod, Ekron and Gaza. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I thought, isn't that marvellous? I mean, here's an account written by the Assyrians, completely different source than our Bible, but it matches up so well with what we've read in Isaiah, doesn't it? And for me, seeing that and reading those words served as a great reminder that what we were reading here in Isaiah is something that really happened. God acted to save Jerusalem. If you don't believe that today, I'd encourage you to just go and have a look at this archaeological evidence. Have a look at the different carvings that the Assyrians made of these battles of, of Sennacherib. Read the Assyrian annals. They've tra been translated for us. And then read Isaiah and read the Jewish annals, the books of Kings and Chronicles, and see what they're saying. Because I don't think these are story tales. I don't think they're made up. Rather, they tell us the story of how God acted to save his people. How God keeps his promises. These words show us that our God and the God of Hezekiah and the God of Isaiah is active and he's real and he's powerful and he's trustworthy. Now, that, of course, doesn't mean that God will provide deliverance for us in every situation, does it? But he has promised that he would save those who call upon his name. He's promised that if we declare Jesus as Lord with our mouths, and if we believe in our hearts that he raised Jesus from the dead, we will be saved, that we'll be incorporated into his family, 
that will be rescued. Come with me to the book of Colossians. It's in the New Testament. As a church, we know this book reasonably well. We looked at it at the start of the year. And I want to show you the promises that we have of our great rescue. Uh, Colossians is, you'll find that on page 1829. I want to read to you from verse 13 of chapter 1. And I want you to see that our deliverance is just as real as Hezekiah's deliverance, but that it's even more amazing that when we read it in comparison with Hezekiah, we'll see that his deliverance was kind of pale. Paul has been giving thanks to God. Paul is the author of this letter to the Colossian church. He's been giving thanks to God. And then halfway through verse 12, and there's kind of no punctuation here, so it's a bit hard for me to pick where we start. But halfway through verse 12, he encourages thanks in God because of this. He says, He has qualified us to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the dominion, in the kingdom of light, sorry. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, what Paul's saying is that each of us who call upon Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, God promises a rescue for us. See, Hezekiah and Jerusalem were rescued when Sennacherib and his men were struck down. But we too have been rescued brought from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the Son, brought into the kingdom of Jesus. You see, God all along, right back from Genesis, has promised that He would make for Himself a people as numerous as the stars in the sky. And hear how He's doing that today. He's taking those who are in darkness and He's rescuing them, redeeming them and forgiving them. Today, he's still a God of action, carrying out his promises in a trustworthy way. And if you've got Colossians open, just come over the column to the right, to verse 22. And I want want you to see how God is doing this, how he takes us from darkness to life. It's all through Jesus. It says there in verse 22, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body, through death, to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. So can you see there that through the death of Jesus, through the physical breaking of his body that we remembered today when we had communion, he is bringing about reconciliation. He's making us holy in his sight. Remember from last week that our God, the God who we love and worship, is a holy, holy, holy God? And so that we can know Him, so that we can be in relationship with Him, through Jesus' death, He presents us also as holy. And that's a rescue of great proportions, isn't it? A movement from darkness to life, death to life, profane to holy. And that's what God has promised he would do. And here we see him doing it, trustworthy, carrying out those promises. In our world today, trust is being eroded all the time, isn't it? I wonder if that makes us still able to trust in God. He's promised salvation for us. He's promised to create a people as numerous as the stars in the sky. He's promised to bless the whole world through Jesus. 
you trust that God will go about doing that, that he really is working out our salvation, how might that change the way that you live your life today? If you trust God a little more than you do at the moment, what would that look like? What things would be different? Would it change the way that you fill out your tax return? It's kind of that time of the year, isn't it? Would it change what your bank balance looks like? Would it change the time that you spend with different people? Would it change the way that you pray or the things that you pray for? In the schoolyard, in the workplace and in our everyday life, it might sometimes seem that God is kind of losing the battle. That in our world, God is being marginalised, that Jesus is becoming irrelevant. might even be the case that those who love Jesus and want to hold on to him are facing great pressure and challenges to let go of him. For us today, I hope as you look through the stories of Hezekiah, you see our God is a trustworthy God and you're reminded that we can have great confidence in him today. In a world where trust is sorely lacking, I hope you see our God is still a trustworthy God. Let me pray. Almighty God, for the sake of your name, we ask that you would keep reminding us that you're a God who keeps your promises. Help us to trust you, to come to you with our prayers and our petitions, our worries and our concerns. We ask that you will be glorified in the way in which you act in this world as you build for yourself a people who profess your name. Amen.